Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hello. Welcome to Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, the podcast with the self-explanatory title. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and today we're finishing up our two-part series on the Paris Commune, which means you might, I don't know, want to listen to the first episode first. If you're beholden to linear time. (laughs) And with me today is Miriam Rochek, who likes to steal boats. Miriam, how are you doing today? One, it was one time. Mm -hmm. Old boat stealing Miriam. (laughs) You're known as forever. Allegedly. (laughs) Allegedly Miriam. Definitely boat stealer. Allegedly. Nope. Wait. Other way around. Okay. So where we last left our heroes, they had conquered the city of Paris, called for elections, told bakers they didn't need to work overnight. They also forgot that robbing banks is always morally good. Yeah. Especially insured banks. I know. <laughs> and like when you control the government, it just seems like a no brainer. I'm, I, I, what did they have a logic for not robbing the banks? Like a reason? Yeah. I mean, okay. Some of it was like, well, that's not our money. And then some of it was, uh, there was, there was worry, which might have been legitimate that if they robbed all the money, that money would essentially become worthless on a like France level. Um, but I don't know. It seems like everyone who looks at it later was like, no, they just should have robbed the banks. But, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah, those. It's are, easy those... to look back and say you should have robbed more banks. I know, Miriam. Okay, what do you think that the government in Versailles? Do you think that they were like, well, they didn't rob the bank, and they're kind of moderate as far as revolutionaries go, so we should probably just like let them have the city. Yeah, in my experience, um, as long as you don't do a certain specific crime, governments are usually okay with people seizing power and and. Uh, self-determining in the absence of government. Yeah. I think that they basically yelled in Minecraft from the barricades and everyone was like, oh, (laughs) oh, we're good. This didn't actually happen. Um, Okay. But that actually, that's not what happened. It's just shocking. But instead they, they mobilized an army against the commune. And, and in all honesty, even with the like attack first and rob the bank and like everything that people might've wanted to do in retrospect, the Paris commune was like probably always doomed because they had a they had a fuck off big city and they had a bunch of sort of trained troops. But not only did Versailles have like a trained army and they had the rest of France, but Bismarck is still like kind of lurking around around here. And apparently he it seems kind of clear to people that if if uh, Versailles didn't retake Paris, Bismarck was going to do it for them. So a lot of the like it would have worked if we'd done this differently conjecture is kind of both infighting and fun. So I don't have a moral stance about whether or not it's good. But anyway, the Paris Commune did realize that, did realize that whether they wanted a war or not, one was coming. They just didn't really know how to organize for this coming war. But Louise Michelle, she had an idea. She pretty much never lacked for radical ideas. One time, apparently she said, 
you know, I really like these agent provocateurs who show up at demonstrations because they're the ones who always have the best ideas. And I think that is the one quote from hers that I had heard, and I truly love it. That is the kind of energy that uh, that you really love to see. Yeah. I don't always love to see it when I'm at a demonstration. Oh, no. I don't love to see it, like, next to me. I love to, to see yeah. it uh, 100 years ago in France, 150 years ago in France. Yeah. But, I mean, it's a rad, it's a rad line. It's a very good line. Yeah. So her plan was, I'll go to Versailles. And I'll fucking kill Adolf Thiers, the okay. leader of France. Um, and apparently she even like slipped out through the siege lines of Paris and took a jaunt over to Versailles and back just to prove that it could be done, which when I first read about it made me look up Versailles is about 10 miles from Paris, which I had well, no when idea. She said, when you say to prove it could be done, I would argue hmm. that going to Versailles and back is the easy part of the going to Versailles and assassinating the head of the government, but that's true. That's true. But either way, it was like a, it was a ten mile jaunt and not a. It's not like from like DC to New York or something. But uh, I would argue that calmer and less intelligent people talked her out of her plan, and instead they planned a military excursion to march on Versailles rather than send one lady with a gun or a knife or poison or whatever, you know, she had in mind. A hot air balloon, maybe. It would be on theme. I yeah, totally. That would work, but... I, you know, I believe in them. And so they, they, they march on Versailles. This does not get far. Uh, that guy, Reclu, I keep bringing up, the one I like, the vegetarian. Oh, I didn't point out that he's vegetarian. Maybe I did. Okay, he, he goes with it. He's, he's part of the march. And... I swear it's related. Well, it's not related. I just want to talk about how cool he was. Well, but just ahead. remind me who who Reclu was, uh, in case oh. I don't remember from from the previous episode. Well, he's the one who volunteered for the the hot air balloon service, even though he was already forty. And he's also the one who I laid out his conception of how the Paris Commune might relate to the rest of the the country and world. And he winds up later. He writes some of the first scientific books that like Western scientific books that actually treat indigenous people like their people is kind of one of his whole things that he contributes to the world. He really hates national borders. He works as a geographer his whole life and he was really weird. Uh, he was pretty much vegan as far as I could tell. Like later people say that all he ate was like bread and fruit. Uh, he was a nudist after the shit with the commune. He goes on to fight against state sanctioned marriage and because it makes women the property of men. and I, I don't think this is weird at all. I think it's a very reasonable position. He helps his daughter sort of illegally f fake marry their husbands, their, their partners. Um, and so he's just this cool old weird hippie anarchist from the 19th century who's brave as shit and goes out onto this fucking march. So he and his buds, National Guard, they bravely go out and march and off to meet the enemy. And they're convinced that the army isn't really going to fire on them, right? I mean, that's how the whole commune started. The army realized that they shouldn't shoot, you know, their fellows. So they run up on some army guys and they're like, hey, we're all brothers. Put down your guns. Oh, why do I feel like that was a one time deal, that outcome from before? Well, it's a shame that you weren't part of this because the army guys are like, oh, yeah, totally. We're totally not going to shoot you. Definitely put your guns down and come over here because we're all oh. brothers. So the commune arts march over there like they're all friends and immediately get arrested. And the army guys, um, a big chunk of the National Guard at this point is actually army because the army had been stuck in after they killed the general and some of the army had defected. They actually the the army's like stuck there and they're like not allowed to leave by Versailles. So they a lot of them become National Guardsmen and join the commune and so the the army who's now captured the National Guardsmen goes through and tries to figure out who used to be army and then just fucking executes them just on the spot. And they they look to see whether their uniforms look army-ish or whether they like march in us, like they carry themselves like soldiers and then they get murdered. And oh, wow. Yeah. So Reclu goes to prison. He's out of the fight. He, he doesn't show up again in this this little chunk. He spends a year in prison and eventually they're going to deport him to a prison colony, but he's this important scientist. And so all of these scientists, including fucking Darwin, write France and are like, don't fucking do this to, to our guy Reclus. 
human rights violations are bad when they happen to people who do science. I know, but there's still part of me that's like, it's cool that Darwin had his back. I don't know, but but it, it is, is like cool, but, but also it, have everyone's yeah. back. Well, and actually, there's this whole thing that happens during the Paris Commune where like it splits a lot of the general community of the types of people who write letters to governments, scientists and artists and so on, about whether or not they support like the communards who are arrested. And a, a good chunk of them do say, hey, like, go easy on the communards or let them go. And a huge chunk also don't. Are are the governments of the world freaked out by this, by the way? I'm not totally sure. I think that probably because this whole thing only lasts a couple of months. I feel like I'm conjecturing, but I feel like it's like kind of swept up in the grand scheme of like, I don't know, Prussia is kicking France's ass and some weird shit's going on. Okay. Some some weirdos are doing something in Paris. Yeah. But there's wars we got to be worried about. Yeah. But I'm not I, I'm not entirely certain. So their whole jaunt out to Versailles gets captured. And what I'm saying here is that the Paris Commune wasn't particularly good militarily. They were a little bit naive. Are you saying you don't support as a military strategy throwing down your weapons and walking towards the enemy and embracing them as brothers? <laughs> I mean, like, it'd be cool when it works, <laughs> but it might be a little bit like, no, you come here first. <laughs> yeah, maybe you, you put down your guns also. Yeah. yeah. I've seen these movies. Everyone slowly puts down the guns. Works better than when you, uh, well, actually it doesn't work very well in the movies either. And okay, but to be fair, they don't have a lot of officers. Like there's not a lot of people here in Paris who know how to run a war. There's one guy who's in charge for a while, Gustave Paul Clausere, who knows what he's doing. But also, I'm going to pin his ascension um, as the beginning of the end. When he kind of comes to power, it's kind of when things start going apart. Because, okay, he's a socialist, but he's like an army guy through and through. He's he's kind of an interesting one. He he volunteered as a general in the U.S. Civil War. I mean, he's a, he's a French guy, but he's like, you know what? Fuck slavery. And he goes over and he like volunteers. Well, actually, he volunteers as less than a general. And he ends up a general in the, the U.S. Army. And because he, he fucking hates slavery and long live the Republic and all that shit. And so then he's like ordered by the governor of New York to go to Ireland and stir up anti-colonial and anti-British sentiment, mostly because the governor of New York wants to fuck with Britain. I love that. I know. And it's also like geopolitics about like taking more control in the Mediterranean or whatever away from the British. But like, I'm still all right with this guy, you know, and and he goes and he joins a, a Fenian uprising, an uprising against the British. And then he has to get the fuck out of Ireland because they sentence him to death in his absence. So he he does all this cool shit. Um, and then he but he also served as a fucking French officer in Algeria. And I don't know whether he did that before or afterwards. I have like no idea whether he had a change of heart about colonization or if he was just a fucking racist. People are goddamn complicated. Um, but. Anyway, as soon as the commune starts, he's like, oh, this is my song. And he runs off to Paris because he's like, I got to go join this. And his ascension marks the beginning of the end from my point of view. I would call this section revolutionary terror is back, baby. But <laughs> it might be a bit of an exaggeration. That is what you called it in the doc. It is what I called it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know, but I needed a way to like read my subtype, my... Uh, I like For it. anyone who's following at home, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I divide it all up with clever titles of the different sections that are just for me. Your and docs I guess for Sophie. are beautiful. I enjoy oh, them. This is a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so there's the National Guard, right? And it's huge and it's chaotic. And the officers were elected by their own men, which goes back decades. And under the commune, like women are suddenly joining the ranks, uh, including obviously Louise Michelle, but also a lot of other women, many of whom are just like Louise Michelle's friends, at least the ones that I have found record of. But I have no reason to believe that this was not happening in mass. And when when women are joining it, the like fellow soldiers are like, yeah, this fucking rules. And then the like high up officers are like, this is bad. This is, I don't know, bad for morale or whatever the hell. Um Monocles popping out of eyes all over the place. Yeah, what? <laughs> yeah, totally. Women <laughs> with guns. <laughs> and so Clausere is like. <laughs> I don't know why I put on a British accent to say "mon dieu," but nah, I liked it. <laughs> so Clausere is like, 
this isn't this this won't do. I don't like this chaotic mess. You all are not a proper army. So he he gets rid of the officer elections. Uh, so goodbye anything resembling workplace democracy for soldiers. Uh, and then also the the guardsmen now have to sleep at the barracks instead of just sleeping at home, which is what they've been doing. And then they toss out everyone over the age of forty, which includes like most of our characters so far, right? And it just like goes on and on. He basically is just like, I'm going to turn this into sh- whip this group into shape, and everyone just deserts because they're like, right. This isn't fun anymore, you fucking asshole. Also, I, re- I recall you abolished conscription. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we can leave. Um, so, like, if you make this suck, we're not going to stay here. Yeah. So everyone leaves. So he actually just completely fucks up the military as far as I'm I'm concerned with my my bias. And in, in the end, when they fight, they fight with a, a fraction of their original strength. And and I blame Klosseray. Uh But so did the Central Committee. Uh, eventually, they arrest him. On May 1st, later they they try him and find him innocent, which is also legit. He was innocent. He wasn't like trying what, to. What fuck was up. he charged with? I just fucking just counter Yeah, we're neo Bolsheviks. I don't know. Oh, gotcha. We they they oh actually that's not true. They they charge him with really specific stuff. There's a lot of like tactical ins and outs that I don't remember all the details of, where they go off and they like try to take this or that fort and they get. Then they like abandon it. And then, you know, so he's arrested also for his like not succeeding, I believe. But I I decided not to do the most of the history stuff I find is very like. And then this army moved forward 10 paces here. And now that that stuff. Yeah, that kind of information like passes directly through my head. Like I it, I take it in through my eyes or ears and it just leaves out through the back of my skull immediately. Totally. I have not retained a single fact about like battlefield maneuvers ever. <laughs> yeah. Unless I can map it to how like protest tactics work, you know, <laughs> um, then I kind of like it, but. Well, no, it's, it's good though. This is why you're, you're the opposite of like the worst kind of person who's into history, who is like, those guys who are really into the civil war and they always have those maps with like the arrows on it, on them. And right. they always have the worst politics and they always have something to say about states rights or something like just the, the absolute worst. And they are the ones who want to talk battlefield tactics. So right. just stay away from that brand of history. I, that is my plan here at cool people who did cool stuff. Okay. So things are looking more and more dire militarily, the national guards leaving. And then, from my point of view, at this point, the council betrays the revolution. And since I'm the one who's telling the story, there you go. The council betrays the revolution. The same people who started off by burning the guillotine are like, you know what? Let's uh, let's bring back the, quote, Department of Public Safety, a.k.a. the Revolutionary Cops. Oh, that went really well last time, right? I, I think so. That's why they have to do it 80 years later, because it worked so yeah. well. Department of Public Safety, like, famously the least ironically named group out there. Yeah. Definitely didn't get anyone killed. Yeah. So in the council, the anarchists are like, fuck no. The Blanquists are like, fuck yes. And the Jacobins oh, no. kind of went along because they were like, yeah, well, because they're well. French revolution LARPers. Like, yeah, yeah, totally. What are they going to, what else are they going to do? And so, okay. So now you've got your revolutionary police and they run around and they, round up dissidents and they shut down newspapers and they raid people's houses. They like end free speech. They don't really murder people with a few exceptions that I'll get to, but this just divides everyone further. Right. Because they don't really murder people with a few exceptions. (laughs) 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 We're just going to glaze right over that. Just a sprinkle of murder. (laughs) Tiny, tiny murder. A petite murder. exceptional murder. I enjoyed that. (laughs) You know, if I'm ever murdered, I just hope, I just hope it's an exception. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. It's like, it's because I hate you, not because. This isn't a pattern or anything. Right, right. Totally. Wonderful. Oh, there's revolutionary cops and and half of the stuff like the radical history is all about all the different revolutionary cops and what they did. And because um, those are some of the most like diehard revolutionists. And I, I don't like them very much. Um, and but we also we we don't know how any of this would have happened long term. Right. Like we don't know whether it was a because the whole thing lasts like seven weeks or something. And 
And then it all ends in what gets called, fittingly enough, the bloody week. Margaret, last time you told me that there wasn't going to be a section of this called the bloody week. I lied. And you know who else (laughs) lies? (laughs) Not the people who sponsor this show, but people who might sponsor things in general. All of our sponsors on this show are telling the truth. As long as they're selling potatoes. Exactly. (laughs) The only ad that you will listen to. If, If you hear any other ad, Please let me know, because the only ad that I, I greenlit was um, potatoes. potatoes. Not any specific brand of potatoes either. The, the yeah. concept of potato. And here are some ads. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. So speaking of potatoes. Mm-hmm. Everyone's just heard a lot about potatoes. Yeah. Um, the, I, I, don't know if the, I don't know what the lead into this is, Margaret. You told me to tell this story. Um, the, the story is just that in uh, England in the 1930s, when the uh, fascist black shirt movement under Oswald Mosley was really strong, uh, there was an anti-fascist counter-demonstration when the black shirts were trying to rally. Um, and the weapon of choice for the anti-fascists were potatoes with razor blades stuck in them. And um, <laughs> I like to tell this story because it allows me to use the phrase, one fascist lost an eye to such a potato. That's it. That's the whole story. That, that Nazi rally did not take place because a fascist lost an eye to a potato with a razor blade in it. Can we, can we, Sophie, can we get the sponsor of specifically razor blade potatoes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we're going to pick a type of potato, it has to be razor blade potatoes. Yeah. Thrown at fascists in particular. Right. I mean, what else? Like, you can't cook a razor blade potato that would be foolish and dangerous. Yeah, no, it'd be no good. But fortunately, good throwing objects. Anyway, the bloody week. Allegedly. More... The alleged bloody week. <laughs> Actually, no one was hurt. This is all a conspiracy. <laughs> okay. So oh. on, on Sunday, May 21st, this, the story goes about this. And again, there's a million stories about everything. There's this guy who doesn't like the commune very much and he's in, stuck in Paris. And he's going on a Sunday walk. And he's like, oh shit, that gate is undefended. Because I guess the National Guard didn't show up to work that day. 
And so he gets up on top of the wall and he's like, hey, buds, the this this door's open. Y'all want to come in? And the people on the other side are like, this is probably a trap, much like we trapped those other people. But they decide to check it out. And indeed, the door is open and the army pours into Paris. And oh, all fucking hell breaks loose. Someone just forgot to close the gate and and show up to work to guard the gate. OK, well, that guy um, did make working conditions terrible so we can put that on him exactly and although at that point he was out and a couple other people had already cycled through they they went through their very few generals i'm still gonna blame him i can't i can't keep up with all this let's just pin it on him okay and okay so actually while this is happening he's on trial the the day that they storm in is the day of his trial glossary and and this gets an example of like why the council actually kind of sucked the entire time. They're just like lost in their heads about like, oh, we're having a government. Like they're like the model UN, right? <laughs> like everyone else is actually busy like making the city work through mutual aid as far as I can tell. And the model UN is like having, they're like, we're a government meeting. And so they have this guy on trial and someone shows up and is like, oh shit, the, the Versailles is here. They're in the streets. Like the fighting has started. And, and how do you think that the council handles that? Were they like, excuse me, you didn't follow Robert's rules of order. Is that what it's called? The thing you're supposed to follow? Uh, that is the thing that many people are supposed to follow. I, I, I don't. Yeah, basically. They're like, okay, that's cool. And then they go back to having the trial. Oh, my God. Seriously? They're yeah. like, that wasn't on the agenda for today. I know. They, if they wanted it on the agenda, they should have come in and, and put it on. The agenda went around last night. You must not have checked your email. This is why I never this is why I hate going to meetings. Just yeah. FYI. <laughs> yeah. So they have the trial until 8 p.m. He's found innocent. But and the, the new general at this point is this Polish revolutionary named Dabrowski who just to tie in a bunch of historical events all together really neatly, which is like my favorite thing about reading history is that he'd been freed by the Russian nihilists. I love, I love your uh, red, red strings on a bulletin board approach to history. Yeah, exactly. Um, All the cool people in a mysterious cabal. Okay. So Dabrowski, uh, he had been freed by the Russian nihilists after he joined a failed uprising in Poland a few years back. And then years later, he doesn't survive this, but years later during the Spanish Civil War, one of the first groups of international fighters to show up and try and stop fascism in France is the Dabrowski Battalion, which is made up of Polish communist miners who are living in France who named themselves after this guy. Aw. Another story that definitely doesn't take a dark turn in the second episode. Right. That's definitely the, oh, that's going to be the whole thing for the whole Strap in, everyone. Okay, so, and actually, apparently, armies everywhere in the 19th century. If you like, needed a pitch hitter, uh, pinch hitter. I don't know baseball. Um, if you needed a uh, an officer and you didn't have one, you get you get a Polish officer because basically, since Poland was divided up into th- three parts, all of their military kept having to flee and run away, and like like people were always in exile. And so you could always get a, a Polish officer in exile if you needed a, an officer. And so Dabrowski helps organize the Paris Commune at, at the last minute. And the, the army pours in. And what do you know? There are these huge open avenues. And they're perfect for circumventing barricades and murdering <laughs> oh, Parisians. No. And murder they did. The estimates range wildly. Uh, but most... At the time, people said twenty to thirty thousand people were murdered. Jesus. Uh, more modern estimates say that it was only ten to twenty thousand. So I'm just going to go ahead and pick twenty thousand as my number that I, I hold by. So they murdered twenty thousand people. And so, as mad as I am about the revolutionary cops, the reason I'm like it's just a sprinkling of murder. What they did, the murder they did, they had about sixty. Actually, they had a couple hundred hostages, but they had. They killed 60 of them because the whole point of the hostages was like, don't invade or we'll kill the archbishop. And then they're like, we're going to invade. So they killed the archbishop. I mean, they did say. Yeah. I mean, it's like the point of hostages. I don't I don't actually feel 
adept to determine the morality here but yeah i'm not like pro murder as a as a general rule but like also it does seem like one side did a lot more murder than the other so well louise michelle would agree with you and she describes the bloody week like this quote for years they've spoken of the victims of the commune about 60 whose names are known the commune's dead can't be counted paris was an immense abattoir where after eight days of slaughter, the hordes of flies over the mass graves put an end to the killings, for they feared the plague. The number of dead of the commune during the bloody week can't be calculated. They were buried everywhere, in the public squares, under the paving stones, in wells, in trenches dug at the times of the Prussians, in cemeteries, in casements, where they were burned. They were brought in wagons to the Champ de Mar, where they were also burned. The ashes weren't gathered and placed in urns. The winds that carried them away will tell neither their name nor their number. Jesus. Yeah. So this idea that they only stopped murdering people when they were like, oh, we ran out of places to put the bodies. All the death was becoming a public health hazard. (laughs) Oh, God. That doesn't relate to the current era. (laughs) I'm so glad we're so far away from this in time. Uh. The, the photographer, Nadair, who I was ta- who I've talked about when he organized the hot air balloons, he talks about how uh, crowds of communard prisoners were marched through the streets and then they were like laughed at and beaten by the rich. And they would they would round up everyone and then they, they would look to see if you had like a bruise on your shoulder or gunpowder on your fingers. The bruise on your shoulder would be from firing a rifle and then they would just execute you on the spot. Rich women would come out into the streets with their parasols and jab out the eyes of the prisoners. Uh, and one by one, all the neighborhoods fell. The, the revolutionary police, they did go down with the ship. They, they left their officers to fight at the barricades. There's kind of a sweet story about one of the council members, uh, De La Cluz. And he, was, he wasn't one of the revolutionary cops. He was just a council member. He was 61. He's on death's door anyway from, I think, tuberculosis. But I couldn't be certain. Someone is certain, and I'm just not the one who's certain. Uh, but I'm he, sure the person who's certain will tweet at you. I know. Yeah. And so he's on death's door anyway, because he spent so long in prison that he got really sick. And so he's like, I'm dying. Paris is falling. And he puts on his like, this is the, this is the Hollywood moment. He puts on his red sash, uh, before the Paris commune, people had like red, white, and blue sashes. And then the Paris commune, they had red sashes and he goes off and he finds the nearest barricade and he climbs up to the top of his red sash and gets shot dead. And at the same time, now Paris is on fire. The, the actual scale of the burning wasn't so great as people claimed in the media at the time and later, but it, it sure wasn't nothing. And most of it was done by one military force or the other. A lot of it was done by the, the communards who were basically like, ah, if we're going down, we're going to fucking set some shit on fire. Fuck this place. And, but most of it was, was military purposes here and there. And the media came up with this myth at the time, which was... Um, there's a very convenient scapegoat who can be blamed for most problems. Uh, women. Uh, when in doubt, I, I know there's a lot of other good convenient historical scapegoats. They could have gone with a lot of them. Um, but at this, this time, they picked women. And when in doubt, they're women everywhere. Are to blame. I know. It's like fucking, we're, we're outnumbered. <laughs> Shit. We're, we're them too. <laughs> uh, so these 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 mythical women were called the Petrolus, which was an, an army of disgruntled poor women who snuck around town with petrol setting fire because they loved destruction. And the the folklorist Ren Arai put the put it this way, talked about this in, in their essay, Baba Yaga Burns Paris to the Ground. Ren says, the myth of the Petrolus was certainly invented to make people unfree, but I like the Petroluses because their fire and ferocity hint at interesting predecessors. And then Ren ties it into the, the long history of the, a myth of fire-wielding women in myth, uh, from, from Baba Yaga to characters in grim fairy tales to the witches that were burned in the witch hunts. So then Ren connects this with, with fairy tales and offers their own. This is Ren's fairy tale. There once was a city of stone where some people ate their soup with silver spoons and others sopped it up with crusts of bread. Though the people of the silver spoons ruled the city for many years, for a spell, the people with the crusts of bread possessed it. 
They set to work remaking the city like they might remake a chair or shoe, reassembling the parts with hard work so that all had enough instead of a few having it. But the people of the Silver Spoons snuck back into the city with guns and bayonets. The streets became the color of roses. Among the breadcrust people, there were certain women, fierce and wise. They carried matches and kerosene, and little children ran at their skirts. They snuck through the nighttime city, leaving flames and smoke behind them wherever they went. Many of these women did not wake up. And that's the folklore I like. Um, but the fear of these petroluses, which again, I'm kind of into reclaiming as being like, all right, maybe they weren't real, but it's still fucking cool. Like, fuck you. It was enough that the army just started shooting random women and kids that they suspected of arson. 50 years earlier, a German revolutionary named George Buckner has a quote, those who make half a revolution only dig their own graves. And I feel like that kind of ties into all this stuff. Didn't rob the bank. I, I'm just thinking about the um, the reclaiming of the of the myths that people tell about you mm-hmm. um, and how powerful that can be. Um, but also, yeah, as you said, I mean, I, I wonder if they, you know, let's say they had robbed the bank or, or you know, not appointed that guy who ruins the, the National Guard or, or mm-hmm. whatever else. I, I do still wonder, like, well, what would have happened then? You know, I think. Yeah. Just because every other nation in Europe, I think, would have been really, uh, really panicked at the idea of an anti-authoritarian, you know, commune existing anywhere near them. I, I wonder how that would have gone down, but maybe by then they would have been able to defend themselves. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it could have been, I know, like the 1917 revolution, a lot of different cities across across Europe and different places uh had their own uprisings and all of those, you know, like a lot of the uprisings in in Europe at the time were all kind of interlinked. So I don't fucking know. Um, a beautiful dream that probably would have ended badly no matter what. But the the highest ranking French officer who defected at the start of it all, he ended up in charge kind of in the middle between the other two. And this guy's name is uh, Louis Roussel. And he he kind of desperately tried to shore up the defenses. Basically, he was like, oh, we need actual you know, we need, the walls won't last. We need to build in these other things. And after the bloody week, he, he hid and he lived under an assumed name for a few months before he was caught, tried and executed. Shortly before his death, he wrote the following in a letter. I shall never regret having tried to demolish that bastard oligarchy, the French bourgeoisie. We may have been beaten, but nevertheless, our cannon shots have told and I hope that the cause of democracy may find at some future period less unworthy and less incapable servants than ourselves. Wow. Yeah. Louise Michelle went underground also, uh, and she, she kept up the fight for, I think, about a month or so. But then eventually, and a bunch of other women, I believe, went underground with her. But then they came and they arrested her mother and to draw her out, and it, it worked. She turned herself in in June and thousands and thousands were arrested and tried. As many as 15,000 people were executed, including basically everyone that Louise Michelle was friends with, especially the men. And so Louise Michelle tried to take credit for everything. Basically, it was like, no, I did that. No, that was me. I did that to try and uh, get other people off the hook. Um, and then they, they didn't kill her pretty much exclusively because she was a woman. And she, she didn't like that. She told the court, quote, since it seems that any heart which beats for freedom has the right only to a lump of lead, I too claim my share. If you let me live, I shall never stop crying for revenge and I shall avenge my brothers. If you are not cowards, kill me. But they were they were cowards, so they did not kill her. And they sent her off to a prison colony. Where you'll be shocked to know she continued to be really fucking cool. (laughs) And we get to talk about the continued adventures of Louise Michelle. We'll get back to the Paris Commune again, but I just, I like my asides about Louise Michelle. <laughs> yeah, so I cool. want to know everything mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. Okay, so France has this little, has a, has a series of islands in the Southwest Pacific that they stole in the 19th century, and it's called New Caledonia. 
they they still fucking have it as a matter of fact and it's where they ship off all the deported communards and on the boat louise michelle spends five months thinking about the commune and everything that happened and everything that went wrong and she becomes an anarchist as she put it I came rapidly to the conclusion that honest men in power are incapable and that dishonest ones are monsters, that it is impossible to ally liberty with power, that a revolution whose aim is any form of government would be but a delusion if only a few institutions fell, because everything is bound by indestructible chains in the old world, and everything must be uprooted by the foundations for the new world to grow happy and be at liberty under a free sky. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, mm. So she's when she's living on the island, she starts sharing quarters with another anarchist woman named uh, Natalie Lamel, and people start to gossip about that. She also started working with the indigenous Kanak people of the island, and with with their permission, she wrote down a lot of their folklore traditions. And she like basically can't help but set up schools everywhere she goes. So she sets up this school, and she's working as a teacher. I honestly can't tell you how colonizing she was or wasn't about it. Um, she obviously like had I, I believe she had their permission and was friends with them in order to relate the the folk tales but you know obviously people setting up schools is very complicated history sure. um but i will say that unlike almost all the rest of the communards when the kenick have an uprising in in 1878 she she sides with them all the rest of the communards nice. are like yeah no she's because she's fucking cool, right? And she like realizes that all this shit's interconnected. Unlike a lot of these communards who are like, oh, well, I don't know. We want like democracy in France, but like these people aren't white. What do you want? You know? Um, I, I can't imagine. Like it, it, it should be so easy for them to take an anti-colonialist position when they are in a colony by force, right? Like they didn't choose to come there. It should be so easy for them to be like, yeah, this whole situation fucking sucks. Of course we're on the side of the people who don't want this to be happening. But yeah, whiteness is a hell of a drug. Yeah. Yeah, it fucking is. And okay, and the other thing that she she uh, studied and, and talked a lot about the Kanak folks is that they had they had dozens of different languages that were spoken by the different groups but they maintained a single language for communication between each other. And this, this influences her politics greatly. And she actually ends up making fun of the, uh, the artificially constructed leftist languages like Esperanto, because she's like, no, no, those are artificial. I was just going to ask if, mm-hmm. <laughs> if this took an Esperanto direction. Well, but she makes fun of Esperanto because she's like, you can't make one. They have to be organically grown from people in order to have a, a language that everyone can communicate with. Cause she's fucking cool. I don't know. Um, it's like she just had a very good bullshit detector. Like she just anything that that sounded good maybe for a second but then turned out to be bullshit. Like she was not going to get sucked into that sounding good maybe for a second part of totally. it. Totally. Totally. Yeah, cuz she was a blankiest the whole time and then she was like, "Oh, that didn't work." And then she was like, "All right, let's try something different," you know? And Yeah. Um in 1880, France pardons all the communards and everyone's allowed back home the people who are still alive. And for the rest of her life, Louise Michelle wears all black. So there is that. And so that is where we got it. I believe so. I don't know whether all the other anarchists like started copying that, but she's also the one who popularizes the black flag as a symbol of anarchism. Uh, She's not the one who invented it. I I believe striking workers in uh, Lyon in the 1830s flew it as the flag of hunger. But I don't know. She wears all black. She flies a black flag. At one point at a strike, she just flies black petticoats because it's what she has. And <laughs> that rules. Yeah. She spends the rest of her life uh, traveling around, joining strikes, giving speeches and writing. She she actually doesn't write much like political texts. She mostly writes poetry. And then later she writes some novels that are apparently kind of incomprehensible. I haven't I haven't taken a shot at them. And the press likes calling her a lesbian. Hmm. As far as I can tell, she kind of like neither confirmed nor denied, although she did say at one point her only love was for the revolution. But I believe she said that when they were specifically accusing her of like fucking this one dude. Um, And okay, so there's an irony in that they were calling her a lesbian because of the same press that had like during her trial and shit had basically been like, oh, she's only a revolutionist because she's obsessed with this one dude. And, you know, she's just in love with this guy who's 15 years younger. He's, He's one of the revolutionary cops. It's completely possible she was in love with him, but I, I don't know. 
However, she did live with his sister for a very long time. Oh, but that's just that's just gals being pals. Yeah. So she, instead of Theophile Ferrer, she she's hanging out with uh, Marie Ferrer and being gal pals. So they basically her entire life, she lives for chunks at like decades at a time with different women. And that's the way she chooses to live. And so the press is like, she's gay. And she's like, and then her friends are like, she's not gay. She's basically the reincarnation of Joan of Arc. She's asexual. (laughs) She is the red virgin. She is an anarchist nun, Uh, which is particularly funny that they call her this because she like scorned Marxism as creating a, a new religion. God forbid she just be a cool revolutionary lesbian. Yeah, it's it's hard to know. And okay, to be fair, like I don't think being a nun and a lesbian are particularly contradictory. Absolutely not. Like sounds like those guys did not know anything about nuns. Yeah. And a lot of ink is spilled about her sexuality. We do know that she she dressed like a man whenever it suited her. When she was younger, she wrote under the name Louis uh Louis instead of Louise, and she lived with a string of different women her entire life. One of her later companions was this woman named Paul Mink. And I just, I'm going to tell you about Paul Mink for like one second because she's fucking interesting. She's this blonkiest and she fought on, fought on the commune. And she was like, I'm really only telling you about this so that I can tell you that she named one of her kids Lucifer Blanqui Veserintix, which is the name of the Gaulish leader who led a rebellion against Rome, Revolution. That was what she named her first son. That is awesome. Uh, <laughs> The, the son dies in infamy, it, not infamy. That would have been cooler. <laughs> Infancy. She names her next son Spartacus Blanqui Revolution. <laughs> you'll be amazing. You'll be shocked to know that young Spartacus eventually changes his name to Max. Oh, <laughs> I affirm the right of anybody to, to discard the name that their parents gave them. But come on, Spartacus? how are you going to not call yourself Spartacus? <laughs> Everyone should be doing that. I know. That's the whole point. Yeah. <laughs> Is the whole point. He's the only guy out there saying, I'm not Spartacus. Yeah. That sucks. <laughs> He's the only one who is Spartacus. <laughs> so, okay. So, and Victor Hugo writes a poem about Louise Michelle. Jules Verne probably wrote a whole book about her. The Survivors of the Jonathan is about a mysterious anarchist who lives among the indigenous people and then helps shipwrecked survivors create a socialist like anarchisty society. And, Sounds like something she would do. Yeah. And then other people have claimed that he uh, was inspired heavily by her for um, for Nemo and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but I don't know. Oh. Um, at one point in 1888, this drunk guy takes offense to her speech and shoots her. And she survives. And she doesn't involve the police because she's like, this guy's a poor worker and his family is on hard enough times as it is. Incredible. Yeah. Amazing. Principled. I know. During the Dreyfus affair, she condemns anti-Semitism. Just, you know, this big whole, should we be anti-Semites uproar that happens in France a little bit later. Sure. She's arrested like four more times. They even deport her a second time to Belgium. She tries to visit both Russia and the US and both countries are like, now we're good. (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) When when she dies in 1905, either 50,000 or 120,000 people come to her funeral, depending on who you read. And the very next day after her funeral, the 1905 revolution in Russia kicks off. And then shortly after she dies, she becomes one of the first gay icons, whether or not she was gay. The early sexologists at the time really wanted a, a more gay icons. And so they picked her. And someone like, I think in 1905, writes this biography about her, about this, like, as she's a great lesbian. And this causes all kinds of scene drama. Uh, The anarchist Emma Goldman, who everyone loves, she she wrote a passionate defense about how Louise Michelle was definitely not gay. No, but I've read, I have read that defense. Okay. And she does go out of her way to say it would be fine if she were gay. Okay. But she she goes out of her way to say it would be fine if she had been gay, but she wasn't gay. And you're all just saying she was gay because you can't imagine a quote unquote normal woman, um, you know, doing the things that she did. 
You know, I always have to stick up for Emma Goldman. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I, <laughs> <laughs> when I the first time I uh, met Miriam, Miriam was uh, dressed up as as Emma Goldman and giving a speech about labor, and it was fucking cool. Um, that was fucking cool. cool. I mean, for a given value of cool, I think it was I fucking like cool. It. I okay. think it's fucking cool. <laughs> so whether or not she's ace, lesbian, or I don't know, loved that one guy, it doesn't matter to me because she ruled. And today there's a Paris metro station, a park, and countless schools named after her in France. You know what else lives on is the concept that you should buy things in order to support other things like me and Sophie. And Sophie's dog, Anderson, and my dog, Rintraw, all of whom are supported by the advertisers who advertise on this show. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. And it's it's hard to overstate how influential the commune was on radical politics, at least in the Western world. Socialism in France kind of died for a decade or so since, you know, all of its practitioners had just been murdered or exiled. But all over the place, people started mythologizing the Paris commune. And the funniest part is that basically all the leftists tried to come up and be like, oh, no, that was us. That was totally our thing. Like, well, if it was your thing, why are you still alive? Yeah, fair enough. Marx and Engels were like, what a brilliant example of the dictatorship of the proletariat. Kropotkin, the anarchist, was excited about as an example of anarchist communism. I think the Social Democrats actually have the strongest claim, but all in all, the Paris Commune was kind of a miserable, beautiful failure, and it was like the clearest example of what to do and what not to do, all wrapped into one. To, to me, it seems like they kind of picked like the worst parts of centralization, like a council that's lost up its own asshole and a general drives out all the volunteers and secret police who defeat the whole purpose with like kind of the worst parts of decentralization. All the diverse neighborhood groups, they wound up unable to coordinate with each other during the final, you know, during the when when all hell breaks loose. And it it also seems to me that half measures got them nowhere. If you're in, you're in and what if, just rob the fucking bank. I don't know. It does feel like a, a turning point in terms of how committed they were to to reshaping this society. Yeah. And I mean, and to be fair, they didn't want a society where, you know, they, they weren't communists. You know, they weren't 
trying to immediately collectivize everything. They, by and large, wanted something between a republic and like a kind of anarchistic social democracy. And yeah, I guess that's that's something that I don't have a clear sense of. Like, what did they if they had like what was their plan? Do you think like what what if if nothing had happened and they had been able to just like build a society that was Mm -hmm. what they wanted to build? Like, what would that have actually been? Probably the answer would have been different between the three different factions, right? Um, sure. But overall, the one I would know the most about would be like the mutualists. I think they wanted a cooperative society that was decentralized. Um, obviously, some of them wanted a, a government, sort of a government without the state. They wanted it at a city level. And I, I think they wanted like these sort of communes to spring up everywhere. And actually, I'm gonna, we're going to talk in a moment about right. some of the other communes that sprung up. The, okay, so the most ironic proof that everyone thinks the Paris Commune is theirs happened in the USSR. Because on, on March 17th, 1921, the Bolsheviks in the USSR, they put down a rebellion by leftist sailors in a place called Kronstadt, who had been... Heard of it? <laughs> yeah, they basically been fighting for what the Paris Commune believed. They wanted a leftist revolution that maintains the rights of free association and press, that doesn't pay one political party more than the others, that doesn't force collectivization, but just ends wage labor, right? That's... A mm-hmm. huge chunk of what the the sailors who were rebelling against the Bolsheviks wanted, the USSR crushes them, and the very next day they celebrate the fiftieth anniversary of the Paris Commune. Fuck you! <laughs> oh, I hate that so much. Yeah, and but one of the things that I think a lot of the communards took away was, oh, you can't have a political revolution without having a social revolution as well. And I think that's one thing that everyone also kind of agrees on is that they're like. You, you got to do both. You, you got to have them both at the same sure. time. Um, Louise Michel puts it, every revolution will now be social and not political. This was the final breath, the supreme aspiration of the commune and the ferocious grandeur of its marriage with death. She, you can tell she was a poet. Yeah. So, okay, one of the strangest legacies of the whole thing is that the commune probably saved the Third Republic. Like they probably would have gone monarchist. Reclus says... We know from the first days of the assembly in Versailles that this slaughtered people, by its attitude, saved the republican form of French government. And then he he goes on to say what he thinks was beautiful about the whole thing. Nevertheless, the present republic, a servant in the service of the Tsar and Kaiser, is so far from any practice of liberty that it would be childish to be grateful to the commune for having saved this vain word for us. But it did something else. It held before us the future, not through its rulers, but through its defenders, an idea far superior than that of all revolutions that had preceded it. It commits in advance those who want to continue it, in France and throughout the world, to fight for a new society in which there will be neither masters by birth, titles, or money, nor servants by origin, caste, or salary. Everywhere, the word commune was understood in the widest sense, as having to do with a new humanity, formed of free and equal companions, ignorant of the existence of ancient borders, and assisting each other in peace from one end of the world to the other. He also goes on to say, basically, like, we shouldn't have relied on the council. That was a bad idea. We really should have focused on the neighborhood mutual defense societies. Uh, I fucking... The council being the people who got interrupted by somebody saying, hey, the army is here, and they went back to what they were doing. Yes. Yeah, it was far more important that they put this man on trial for having not succeeded at defending them than to go out and defend themselves. Um, And then, okay, finally, I want to end with a quote from someone whose story I didn't really get to tell you. Paris was actually, they weren't the only city that decided it wanted a commune. A bunch of different cities tried around the same time. The city of Lyon, and especially one of its suburbs, did it twice and held out the longest a couple weeks in 1870, so actually before the Paris commune. I mean, they weren't under siege. And then a few days in 1871. The, the death toll there, we don't talk about it as much, the death toll there numbered in the dozens, not the tens of thousands. An anonymous council member from that revolution said this in reflection years later about being asked to serve on the council. Instinctively, through intuition rather than through reasoning, I felt that I was guilty of illogic by preaching freedom and accepting to be a new master. But how could I refuse without being taken for a coward? There was danger, and I accepted it. I have been angry at myself ever since, though at the time I was one of those who believed that something could be done by a revolutionary government. My role on the commune was the same as any ruler's. It was absolutely useless when it wasn't harmless. And then he he goes on. 
he goes on to say that he thinks that when, when threatened, the people who elected him, he thought the whole time, he was like, okay, the people who elected me, they're going to come and defend me, right? After all, that's, that's what they elected me for. And then they think, oh, no, no, we elected you. You defend us and can step right. back. And, we, so, were, we were putting responsibility on you to, to do that for us. Yeah, exactly. And so because they both were counting on the other, it didn't work. And he says, my opinion is that the insurrection of 1871 could not succeed precisely because it left the insurrectionary state in, behind in order to enter the governmental state. I believe that any insurrection that marches to the conquest of a new government is sterile, that any insurrection that names chiefs is stillborn. The insurrectionary state is one in which the people alone, without leaders or chiefs, can specify its desires, its wishes, its aspirations, and its needs. And obviously I'm coming at this with a huge bias towards the anti-state approach. Uh, you know, everyone who left after the commune, you know, had, had their different ideas and it's also probable that they would have lost no matter what. But it, it feels to me that they could have held on to their soul before they died. Yeah. And then um, remember what I was saying way back Monday about how the, the second empire, you know, is an empire that went around gobbling up countries. Well, the third republic, they grabbed even more. Oh, man. They expanded all their stolen shit in Asia, the South Pacific, and West Africa substantially. Right. This is still France we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So, Miriam, how are you feeling about the Paris Commune? Gotta, gotta go wear all black, I guess. I, I knew that wasn't going to go well, and I'm sad that it didn't go well. Yeah. It didn't go well, but some people who did cool stuff, I must say. It's true. There were definitely some cool people in this story, and I think they did some cool stuff. For sure. And they really... Not rob banks, though. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's... I just... Maybe I'm just... Maybe this is not... This is less a political bias than, like, an aesthetic bias. I love a heist. Like... (laughs) <laughs> when when the bank is just there and you're basically just allowed to rob it. I mean, how do you no. decide, like, no, we're going to actively prevent that? Like, no, you start assembling a team, dig a tunnel, whatever. Like, you can do it risk-free. I know. Rob a bank. I know. It's the easiest time Somebody in the world. Somebody can repel in from the ceiling. It's always fun. Everyone <laughs> else walks in the door. And they're like, hey, Frank. Hey, yeah, I just wanted to come just, in this he's way. He's just like, I've always wanted to do this. Yeah. <laughs> Frank is me. I'm Frank. <laughs> <laughs> and then they throw the, all, all the other Franks into a bag and walk out. Uh, I didn't do that on purpose. Currency I, jokes. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that's going to do it for the Paris Commune. Oh, yeah, really... You really did it for the Paris Commune. <laughs> any any plugs for us, Miriam? Um, not for me personally, because um, I don't exist and uh, would prefer that nobody contact me. But um, there's a bail fund uh, called COVID Bailout, um, which can be found at covidbailout.org um, that raises money to get people out of New York City jails so they don't get COVID. Um, you can give them money if you have any of that. Covidbailout.org. Thank you. And Margaret, you, do you know the name of your book this time? Uh, not when I'm put on the spot like this. <laughs> Why would I remember the name of my own book? Which book? Oh, God. Yeah, that is asking a lot. Come on. I know. Uh, well, it's not even available for pre-order yet. I'm stalling so that I can remember the name of my own book. But... <laughs> Uh, I think it's called We Won't Be Here Tomorrow and Other Stories. I'm not even sure if that's what name I claimed it was last time. It's, yeah. So I have a book (laughs) coming out this fall from AK Press. It's a collection of my short fiction, some of which you might have heard on Cool Zone Media podcasts in the past. I also want to plug that I um, have a Twitter and you can follow me on Twitter. And my Twitter handle is Magpie Killjoy. Sophie, do you have anything to plug? Uh, at Cool Zone Media, Instagram and Twitter. Cool. Yeah, get all, all the things there, and then we'll be we'll be back Monday. Yep. Right. Yep. Cool.
People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.